My name is Yulin, and I'm here for another episode of Ked Talks. I'm here today with Alex Bennett, who is a professor at Kansai University. Uh, he's also the uh, author of Bushido, as well as translator of, of many works, including the Book of Five Rings. He's got an upcoming book on uh, on the memoirs of a former kamikaze pilot. Uh, and we're also here with uh, Michael Ishimatsu Prime, who is a frequent uh, contributor for to, to Kendall World Magazine. He's, he's one of the guys who keeps the whole thing running. Uh, the fact that we still are able to publish issues at all is largely due to his work. He has an MA in uh, Japanese Language and Society, uh, and some of his recent work includes the translation of Hirokawa uh, Nobuo Sensei's book, uh, Kendo, Fundamentals and Waza to Win. So thank you guys for agreeing to come on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Alex is joining us from, uh, from the woods, uh, or, or I guess coronavirus has taken over your living room, so the, the wild animals have, have come in as well. No, I just set up camp in Nara Park, you see. Um, uh, I'm going to cook myself some venison later on. <laughs> <laughs> they, are, they are quite tame. I, I love the signs they have there of like the, the, the deer uh, molesting tourists, right? Like uh, knocking over old ladies, stealing candy from, from young kids. Oh, yes. They're very assertive. The yeah. uh, and um, they're sort of like being hand-fed their whole lives on these really horrible sort of um, crackers. Shikasembe, is what I believe they're called. Shikasembe, is that what they are? Yeah. 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 Um, so they're not real deer. <laughs> they're not like the, the hard deer that you get in the bush back home in New Zealand. They're really soft, really soft. Well, one of them ate my map the last time I went there, so yeah, they're pretty hard. <laughs> right. hey, we're, not, we're not here to talk about deer, though. We're here to talk about uh, sort of translating in general. You guys have done quite a lot of translating, both from uh, Japanese to English and English to Japanese. Uh, in particular, of, of martial arts-related stuff. What are some of the challenges you, you, you find in translating martial arts-related uh, material? Particularly, you have to think about what you, your audience is, really. Obviously, with the Kendo Fundamentals and Wazatui and Hirakawa Sensei's book, it's all for Kendoka. And most likely, the, the people that are reading that have done Kendo before. So... Um, a bunch of stuff you can not translate and just be like yeah so so you have to think about the different words that are being used and um just exactly how much you actually need to translate so if you see what i mean there's a lot of vocabulary a lot of words that we all use that um a person who does kendo does know so you don't really need to translate them but if it's something more historical or more cultural or, or something like that then you have to go a lot deeper into the uh, into the translation. You probably need to annotate it, as Alex has done with several of his works. So you, first of all, you have to really think about what your audience is and uh, who's going to be reading it, and then kind of adjust your translation based on that. Obviously, with something like Alex did recently, Gordon Noshaw, um, he would have had to have get a lot got a lot deeper into the meanings of some of the words and things like that than I would have had to, or that I did for. Hirakawa Sensei's book. A lot of the a lot of the works that people tend to think of are in sort of classical Japanese, which I guess bears as much relation to modern Japanese as Shakespearean English does to to modern English. I think also uh, 
just to touch on what Michael was was saying there, um, the way in which you approach the translation will vary greatly depending on whether it is a, a work, um, a classical work, which, you know, uh, is more literature as opposed to a teaching manual, uh, a technical manual. Uh, so, for example, the, the book that Michael did recently, this book is primarily a book about, well, basically technical know-how, isn't it, Michael? It's, um... Yeah, so here's the book. Um, but yeah, as Alex said, it's mostly uh, technical, but there is a, a few pages at the beginning with a little bit of history about Kendo, but generally uh, probably 98% of it is all technical. Hey, Michael. I just found a spelling mistake in the cover. Where? <laughs> yeah, good one, good one. <laughs> it would it would be quite uh, quite embarrassing to that. Like we we go through so many of these like revision and grammar and, and spelling checks with uh, with each one of our books. Like it's 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 incredible. Like how many revisions do you guys like go through past the the initial translation? I think for for, for that book, the very first one. I did, and then I went through it all again, and then I sent it to Alex, and Alex made some corrections. Then it some, got some corrections, yeah, just a couple, <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then it got laid out, and then I went through it again just to make sure that because sometimes when the the text is laid out, like words get cut in strange places, and maybe the the body of text is wrong for the for the picture that it's supposed to be describing because also there were i think 1300 photographs that had to go into that book as well so you got all the captions for that so i had to go through and check that they were all all right then another a proof got made of that then a gashku where there was there was me you and uh, uh, me and uh, Yulin and a couple of the other boys went through it all again then i had to put all of them changes back into the InDesign files, printed it out again, and then went through it again. And then I believe Alex went through it one more time after that, I think. So. At least, I think. I, I remember just being being shocked at just how many times we, we you guys, you know, we go through a single, a single article. Yeah, and then and also with, with that book in particular, you have to make sure as well that the all the words are rendered in the same way and that the same terms of phrasing are the same way. Uh, the, the hyphens are used in the same way. Uh, one thing that we've got that we often use as a base, uh, as a reference, is the uh, All Japan Kendo Federation's uh, Japanese to English Dictionary. Which uh, I'm translated, by the way. Yeah, which Alex translated. <laughs> I imagine that was quite easy as well. Um, oh, yeah. oh, simple, mate, simple. So we, we kind of use that. So for a lot of the terminology that we'll use that as a base to how, how the words are, are being uh, uh, are written in English. But yeah, it was, a. Uh, I, I think probably by the time I'd finished the translation, it was probably another year of yeah. different layouts and several months at least anyway, of, of printing it out again. And then if there's one mistake that I see with the way a certain word is rendered, then I have to go through the whole document to make sure that all of those are then consistent all the way through. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's probably still a, a couple of things in there. They stand out like dogs' balls once it's printed, right? <laughs> um, but one of the uh, really difficult things uh, with 
whether it be a, a piece of classical literature or a, um, a teaching manual like uh, the Hirakawa Sensei book that you translated is often the, the translation will be correct um, because as a translator, first and foremost, you make, you're trying to make sure that uh, the content is being and conveyed correctly. But a very easy trap to fall into is uh, the trap of chokuyaku, okay, or direct translation. So for sure, uh, the content is accurate, but it's, it's not natural English anymore. It's sort of, but as a translator, often you don't get that. You don't see that because you know in your mind what it's supposed to be. And you're so focused on getting it right that you miss the very obvious um, strangeness in the English that it comes out in. And that's where people, uh, you know, um, who are reading it for the first time, they'll pick up on all sorts of stuff and they'll say, what, what the hell are you trying to say here? And that's when you have to go through and rewrite it. And that will, uh, in the process of translating this whole book, without realizing it, you've, you've created all these really strange phraseologies and weird ways of, of putting things, and you have to go through and change it all again. And that knocks certain things out of kilter in your own mind, which means you have to go through and try and even it out and, and uh, well, polish off the edges, buff the edges a little bit. So, But sometimes it sounds like that, that those like weird phrases, phrasing is, is uh, sometimes what people seem to be looking for, right? I, I've seen criticisms of, uh, of translations being like, this seems too colloquial. Hmm. Too colloquial. Uh, then, like, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not of yours, but, uh, but, or maybe even of yours. Like, we're talking about the Book of Five Rings. There's, there's, there's many places where you, instead of literally translating the exact, hmm. like, uh, phrase or the, the words that, as they're written, you, you chose a more, say, uh, modern alternative yeah. to make it more readable. And therein lies the art of translation, I think. Um, Google Translate or even Microsoft Word Translate these days does a very, well, a pretty good job at sort of getting the main points and the, and the keywords across. And, but the real art of translation is understanding what it is that the author, the original author is trying to say and not only putting across the, the, the information that's in the text accurately, but putting it across the way in which the author, the original author would want it to be put across. So when you, when you read a lot of these classical Japanese texts like Gorin no Shō, for example, Hagakure, uh, Koyo Gunkam, they actually are quite colloquial in their original forms. Um, but you would not know it was colloquial unless you really knew a lot about that period. You know, you know a lot about the language of that period. You know a lot about the culture and the social and political background of that period. And you can try and, I mean, it's impossible to do it, you know, 100% right, but try and put yourself in the shoes of the original author. Um, that's one of the big... Uh, issues that I have with uh, books like Miyamoto Musashi's Gori 
that have been translated by other translators, not only from Japanese to English, but before that from classical Japanese into modern Japanese. And just because it's a Japanese person who's trans, it's basically translating it like, like you said before about Shakespearean English into modern English. Um, the problem with that is, especially with, you know, our field is, is really, you know, related to Japanese martial culture, Bushido, Budo, martial arts. Um, a lot of the, the modern renditions in, in Japanese of these classical texts have been done by uh, experts in literature. They treat the actual book, or the original work, or the, the original treatise as a work of literature, when actually, Gorin no Shou by Miyamoto Masashi is actually not that different to um, Hirakawa Sensei's book. It was just written a few hundred years before. It's more or less a, a kind of a te technical manual in many respects, uh, something that he wanted to pass on to his students. So in that sense, it's not necessarily a work of literature. And so when somebody who doesn't know anything about bujutsu um, or about you know, samurai culture, but knows a lot about classical Japanese and literature translates it, you miss a lot of those finer nuances um, perhaps you miss a lot of the colloquialisms as well. Um, so when I translate, uh, particularly these, these older texts, it's, it's, it's much harder in that respect, but it's also a lot more satisfying. I try and put myself in the shoes of the author rather than serve as, as a go-between. Um, and because of that, sometimes naturally these colloquialisms come out. Whether they're absolutely 100% accurate or not, <laughs> you know, I, I would say they are, of course, but other people might, may take issue with it. But I am trying to feed off my own experience and sort of uh, uh, transport myself back in time into, in the case of Miyamoto Musashi's Gori no Shou Musashi. But I had a, a very strange... Uh, disturbing experience when I was translating Hagakure uh, for this very reason. Now, Hagakure, I don't have a copy of my... It's, it's right, uh, right by your head. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, yeah. red, the big red one. That's right here. I was asked by Tuttle to translate this, and I started translating it. There, of course, there are already a number of translations, English translations, other languages uh, other than English, and also uh, modern Japanese translations. And it's really interesting, you look at the modern Japanese translations, they're all quite different as well. And so the way in which you uh, interpret what is being said really um, depends a lot on your, uh, your own personal background and how well you can sort of maneuver yourself into the position of the original author or, you know, as close as you can to that, to that, the context of that time. And coming from a, a martial arts background, a kendo background, I have insights that are different perhaps to the literature professor in, in a Japanese university who's looking at it, as I said, like, like I said before, as a, as a work of literature. But looking at it from a martial artist, a lot of stuff makes sense to me that probably wouldn't make sense to somebody who's never done um, 
classical Japanese martial arts or even modern Japanese martial arts. And when I started translating Hagakure, I was sort of making, you know, relatively steady progress, but there's certain bits where I'd get stuck. And I mean, I'd get stuck on a, on a paragraph or a sentence that'll take me a whole day to get my head around because I'd work out in the scheme of things, this one sentence is actually quite pivotal because everything that comes before it and everything that comes after it sort of relates to that. And so if I get that wrong, then it's going to throw everything out of, out of kilter and my interpretation would have been mistaken. So you have to take care. And some, sometimes you get stuck. And it got to the stage where, where I was obsessing with, you know, even the smallest phrase and it was starting to do my head in. After I got about half of the book done, um, I had this dream. Now, I know this sounds weird. It does. We've decided that these probably will go a little bit smoother with uh, if everyone's got uh, some sort of drink in their hand. So. Yeah, you're right. Here's everyone. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's helping me um, access those suppressed memories. But I had a dream of Yamamoto Tsunetomo, who's the old geezer um, in Hagakure. He's the orator, basically, in his, uh, uh, his kōhai, uh, Tashiro no Tsuramoto. He was the guy that sort of wrote down Yamamoto Jōchō, or Tsunetomo's words, as he was relaying them. And Yamamoto Jōchō came to me in this dream, and he said, Oi, bollocks, what the hell are you doing? I, I, I can't remember if it was in Japanese or English, but yeah, he, <laughs> he, sort of, he, he was a bit pissed off with me. He says, you haven't listened to a word I've said. Now, this is true, man. This is what he said to me when I woke up and I remember this. And it's like, Jesus, I just got berated by Yamamoto Jocho. <laughs> you haven't listened to a word I've been saying. That translation is bullshit. Stop it now. And it's like, oh, my God. It, it freaked me out. I sort of woke up in a cold sweat and it freaked me out and I, and I looked at all the stuff I'd translated. And, and it's like, to use a Japanese word, it's very katite. It's like very rigid and it's... Very hard, very uh, stiff. And, yeah, yeah it's, it's not natural. And then, and then I remember what Yamamoto Jocho sensei said to me, um, my dream, you haven't listened to a word I've been saying. And that was, that was the spark. It's like, bloody hell. Yeah. Because you think about it, the way that that book came about um, in the early 1700s was Yamamoto Jocho lived in a little mountain hut in Saga Prefecture. He'd retired uh, from being a samurai for various reasons. If you buy the book, you'll know why. <laughs> and he had his kōhai, uh, Tashiro no Tsuramoto, would come and visit him over the course of seven years. He'd walk into the, into the forest where Yamamoto Jocho was living. I've actually been there uh, before the book was published because I figured I had, to, I had to breathe the air. I had to drink the water. I had to drink the sake, oh, as I spill it, um, of, of where Yamamoto lived. And, and when you think about it, human beings, we have good days and we have bad days, right? We'll make up uh, 
this morning I'll be feeling tired. I'll wake up tomorrow and I'm energized and I'm really positive. And uh, the next day I might be a little bit grumpy. The day after that I might be quite playful. Everybody's different and you have your, you have your rhythms. You think this Hagakure has been, was written over the course of, well, of Tashiro no Tsunamoto visiting his senpai uh, over seven years. And, and it's like, some days are going to be good, some days are going to be bad. And when you're reading Hagakure in the original, some of it is like really nasty. Some of it's really actually quite funny. But it doesn't make sense because certain sections you have this very serious uh, tone and other, other sections it's like, seems like it's taking the piss and it's, it's like contradicting itself. And, you know, and I realized like what Yamamoto Jocho said to me in this dream, um, you, you are not listening to what I'm saying. In other words, you're just translating text. You're not translating my words. You're not translating my mind. And the clue that he gave me, and I know this sounds weird, guys. I'm not Bill, okay? I know it sounds weird. But the clue that he gave me is like, you have to approach this book as if I am talking to you exactly how I was talking to Tashiro no Tsuramoto. And if I listen to you, well, if I listen to him, as it were, um, just like Tashiro did when he wrote down the words for Hagakura, he was listening and interpreting the way uh, that it resonated with him. It's not, yeah, an, he's not, he's not transcribing, he's listening and then he's going home and the next day he's writing out. I exactly. think that's what that guy said. Exactly. And so once I've worked that out, it's like, it actually wasn't that difficult. It wasn't that contradictory at all. Um, and one thing I'd like to do with Hagakure, um, and in many of the books like it that I've translated, is I'd like to go through each uh, little vignette and put an emoji in there, like a smiley emoji or a grumpy emoji or a surprise emoji or a, you know, whatever. Because each one of them, each section is like different. It's representing a different kind of mood. Um, and the only way that you can really get to that essence of it is to be colloquial because human beings are essentially colloquial. And so this is why I think translation, especially in Japan, is off, often really underrated as a skill. It's like, oh, you just changed the words around. Where it's not that at all. It's, uh, it's really getting into the mind, into the heart of the original author and trying to convey the essence of what they were trying to convey well, what about you, Michael? Have you have you been visited by any uh, ancient samurai in your dreams? Doesn't Hirakawa seem to live around the corner? <laughs> well, actually, yeah, he just lives five minutes drive away from me. But um, no, I've not been visited in dreams by anyone. I think that's just you, Alex. Sorry, mate. But what I, about the process then? I, I can see how, like, if you're saying it's very colloquial, if you if you were to translate it very or, or, or output it very colloquially there would be some people I imagine that would be, oh, but this is a great martial arts text. Why are you putting it in such kind of rough language? You, you're not doing it right. I imagine you, 
if that the, them kind of comments would would follow if you do something. Yeah, but my my um, comment back would be okay. You translate it then. Well, I mean, a lot of people think they can do a better job, right? They're like, oh, I've I've learned a little bit. I I know what all the words in here in the sentence mean. Yeah. Uh, doesn't this word oh, actually legal. mean this? <laughs> I remember reading uh, was it a section on, uh, I was browsing through the Book of Five Rings before this, and there was one about, you know, stepping, like stepping on the sword, right? Kenofumu, right? Uh, I think some people translate it as like trample, um, you, you translate it as step, but, you know, you, you could translate it as like, you know, it's like, like tromp or, or you know, uh, something very, 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 very much colloquial, right? Uh, and it wouldn't be wrong. No, that's the, that's the whole point. Um, the, the language that's used is actually colloquial. Okay. Um, like Musashi's language, uh, Yamamoto Jocho's language, Oyo Gunkan's Yamanashi. Well, in those days well, it was... Shakespeare, I mean, I hate to, to, keep, to keep harping on this example, but right, Shakespeare is written in the colloquial English of the time. It's not, it's not the language of the, the educated... Yeah, uh, like literati class that he that he's using, even though that's sort of the impression we get, right? Here. Yeah, and, and the other the other thing you got to keep in mind uh, when we're talking about classical samurai texts, um, the, the dialect is really important because the various domains had a very strong sense of, uh, I guess you could call it a kind of national identity, and their language was also very different. Uh, very different. So you're looking at different regions they purposefully use a different kind of language or different. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's like what old, old Germany, right? Before unification, right? You yeah. identify as a samurai from this domain, not part, not, not a samurai from Japan. There, there's no such, or there's not really as strong a concept of that in, in your mind. Right. Yeah. That's fine. And not only that, uh, it gets even more difficult when you, when, when you sort of, peel away the layers, especially of, of the older samurai texts, is not only uh, you're talking about the language variation in terms of the region and the era, but also um, with regard to well, the way things are written or put down depends largely on who that message was being uh, written for. So you've got this kind of uh, jaw gear, you've got this hierarchical thing going on as well. Uh, so when we, th- we talk about samurai, bushi, for example, people often seem to think that bushi were just a group of professional warriors, but within the samurai society, there were a lot of different ranks, and it was very hierarchical, and the, and the way in which things were conveyed uh, or expectations were often very different even within that, that samurai group. Yeah, you'd have your, your your nobility all the way down to people who are technically samurai, but really were just farmers. Yeah, just like uh, Michael over there. Sort of <laughs> just yeah, just a riffraff. Well, <laughs> oh, like, like uh, Oda Nobunaga, right? I think his or, or what? No, no, Nobunaga was was aristocracy. Yeah, Hideyoshi. Uh, Hideyoshi was basically like one, basically a jumped up peasant as far as they were like technically yeah. samurai. It's your classic rags to riches sort of story, basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the cannon fodder rank of, of, of your samurai <laughs> who was disdained by all the... Uh, <laughs> this, this all, was, yeah. Yeah. 
everybody. <laughs> is, is that a plug, Alex? Sorry, just to... You move from the woods of Nara into the, the woods of uh, your own self-regard. <laughs> That's a plug, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Let's shift tack a little bit from from the from the classical stuff. But what's some of the most difficult stuff that you've had to translate, and, and why was it so difficult? Are you talking to me or Michael? Um, let's start with Michael. Um, well, in terms of volume, uh, yeah, Hirakawa Sensei's book because it was a a huge amount. But um, uh, through Kendo World, you know, we've done a lot of stuff for. Uh, the All Japan Kendo Federation, the Japanese Academy of Budo, Nippon Budokan, um, Scuba University, things like that. But when, um, particularly with the stuff for the All Japan Kendo Federation, when it's rules or official stuff, uh, say, for example, about World Kendo Championships or uh, Shiai Shimpan rules or whatever, then a lot of the translation there will go to a committee and every word is poured over. And, and again, as Alex has said, when, when you've read a piece of text... It's about a committee um, checking your translation. Yeah. Um, and, and with members of the... with the All Japan Kendo Federation that are excellent English speakers, you know, so that... But, but yeah, it's a whole committee will then pour over each, each phrase. And I get that because... Um, well, I wasn't involved on the, the dictionary, but I, I earlier on this year did stuff for um, information coming out about the new, uh, the, the next World Kendo Championships. And some of them were slight, um, like updates to rules and uh, other official things like that. So you have to make sure that it also matches the, the phraseology that's used on previous documents as well that I haven't had, maybe haven't had access to. So do the translation, send it off. Oh, can you use this phrase instead? Can you use this? Um, so that can be quite tricky. And can, with, with documents like that, can be so much, you know, backwards and forwards. Yeah, consistency, I mean, I think I talked about earlier, is, is it actually really difficult in translation because you, 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 you would expect the same phrase or the exact same sentence, which might get repeated in multiple, should be translated the exact same way, but you... It's it's hard to remember that. Oh yeah, I've, I've, I wrote it exactly this way when I translated it before. Well, especially if you know we weren't involved in the original one, maybe then we have to base it on the the original English that was done by someone else, maybe. But for consistency, it all has to go through. So that that can be that can be quite difficult as well, especially when some words in English maybe have. It could mean you know one thing or another. There could be a couple of different meanings as well. But can you give some specific examples? Not put you on the spot or anything. Off but. the top of my head, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right. well, Fair enough. I, I remember um, sometimes uh, context is is always a tricky one, isn't it? And so, just to give you a very simple, very simple example. Uh, a few years ago, uh, my brother Blake and I were asked by the All Japan Kendo Federation to translate the pamphlet that they had just put out in Japanese about anti-doping in Kendo. Um, this was after Kendo, uh, the, the International Kendo Federation became affiliated with uh, Sport Accord. Uh, so they have to comply with WADA anti-doping rules. And this is something that people in kendo had never 
thought about before. I mean, kendo, you don't have retirement. Um, you go until you're 80, 90, 100 years old if you can still stand up and hold a stick, um, which means that a fair proportion of the active kendo population in Japan are taking drugs of some sort to keep alive. <laughs> Their blood pressure or heart pills or whatever, right? And so anyway, we had to translate this, uh, this document into English, uh, even though it was put out by the All Japan Kendo Federation for people in Japan. Um, the Federation figured that, well, this obviously is going to affect international kendo as well, like the world championships and so forth. So we better put an English one out. So the stage where we translated, it's all, you know, we're talking about anti-doping. The, the common sense is the same everywhere in the world. There's certain things you're allowed to do and there's certain things you're not allowed to do and there's certain procedures that you have to follow. But then it started talking about, uh, okay, uh, the kind of food that you can eat or should eat and kind of food that you shouldn't eat and the sort of food that's good before shiai. And oh, so, so, so it wasn't just like an anti-doping thing. It also turned into like a, a sports nutrition You've got it. And then it started saying, you know, things like, uh, uh, and tonkatsu and blah, 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 blah. Or, uh, fried, basically fried things on sticks or fried pork cutlets, like deep fried yeah. breaded stuff. That's right. And so because uh, there was a focus very much on the Japanese way of life, a Japanese diet and the things that are available in Japan, um, Simple question. Do we translate it uh, as it is in the Japanese for the international community <laughs> and say, yeah, watch out for tonkatsus and kushikatsus and, and eat, eat more of the takuan pickles or. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of carbohydrates and rice and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Okay, of course, right? Um, but that is not necessarily applicable to somebody who lives in um i don't know uh the netherlands or i don't know uh the dutch west indies you know um so how true do we stay to the original translation or how much room do we have to make uh some sort of changes to make it more applicable to a wider wider audience that's not necessarily restricted to, to the Japan scene. And interestingly, Michael mentioned the committees. Committees are a pain in the ass <laughs> because you've got all these uh, senseis who don't really um, understand English so much, but they'll be able to pick out words here and there that don't match the words in the original Japanese and they'll immediately assume that this is an incorrect translation. This is no good. And so you sort of had to well, say all of that trophy, yeah, the direct translation sort of fallacy. Like I know that the translation, I mean, in some of the Patreon chats we've done, right? You talked about the, the translation of the word, uh, Ken, right? Whether that should be translated as sword or, or katana or all that. And, and a lot of, it's mistakenly translated as katana a lot of the time when you should use the more generic word sword. Yeah, exactly. Like even in the, um, the official 
concept of kendo, which was created in 1975, um, it uh, says that uh, kendo, we study kendo, uh, or we, we develop our character through studying the principles of the sword. Unfortunately, the original English has principles of the katana. Okay, but the Japanese doesn't use the word katana at all. It uses the word ken, which is written with a completely different kanji, which means tsurugi. And so... Which means like a generic sword, whether it be single-edged, yeah. double-edged, curved, straight. Well, no, no, actually it's, uh, it means double-edged sword. And therein lies an incredibly important uh, underpinning philosophy of what we're doing in kendo. That's why we call it kendo, not todo or katanado, right? Because it's the double-edged sword. In other words, the sword that you use to fight against your opponent, but at the same time, the blade is also pointing towards you. So ultimately, the, the philosophy behind kendo is that before you cut the evil from your opponent, which is what we're essentially doing with sword fights and what you do with a katana because it's a single-edged blade, it goes one way, right? Um, philosophically speaking, we should also have a blade pointing towards ourselves, uh, so that we can also think about our own deportment, our own character, our own inherent evil, our own inherent good, and so on and so forth. This is the philosophy behind the, the, the official concept of kendo, but that was mistranslated from the outset because it missed the point. Instead of saying tsurugi or ken, double-edged sword, it just immediately assumed uh, that the best way to translate that into English is katana because everybody knows what a katana is and let's face it, it's Japanese swordsmanship. Big problem. And if One of the great unspoken ironies that you know, kendo is named after a type of weapon it doesn't technically use. Exactly. Or even the way we write shinai, okay, um, for the bamboo swords that we use. Ta-da! <laughs> um, who's watching who's not familiar with kendo? <laughs> yeah. Which Life is another good point about translation, uh, assuming that the person who's reading it generally doesn't know what the hell you're talking about and to help them understand it. But this is, we use this in kendo, right? A shinai. Okay, it's written uh, bamboo katana, if you use the kanji. So again, if we're using a bamboo katana, why, are, why do we call it kendo instead of todo or katanado? So these are the sort of things that unless you're really immersed in that, in that kendo culture, you will not be able to, to convey that, that the, the hidden meaning you won't be able to read between the lines and therefore work out the best contextual way of expressing the essence of what it is that you're translating. So you guys probably also have to spend a lot of time, I guess, or, or encounter a lot of other people's translation of, of martial arts texts and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, at the risk of maybe, uh, well, it's hard, maybe, maybe not names of names, but what are some translations or ways of translating things that really that really irritate you guys? 
like mistranslated phrases or, or, or styles of translation? I, I don't think it's things that, that are necessarily irritate or not phrases that are irritating, but it's maybe from someone that doesn't have uh, a background in kendo or other martial arts uh, then translating a martial arts text. So, for example, recently we did, um, or a couple of years ago now, we did uh, Shigematsu Sensei's tech, uh, book that became uh, uh, The Kendo Mind, A Guide to Grading, and it was translated very well by someone that we know, but unfortunately that person doesn't have a background in kendo, so a lot of the phrases for maybe techniques and concepts that, that kendo practitioners are very familiar with um, were actually sort of translated um, uh, what was something like, for example, men kaishido, like men returning to uh, men returning to to door. Obviously, uh, if someone that knows kendo wouldn't need, as uh, someone that knows kendo wouldn't need that kind of w- would understand men kaishido wouldn't need wouldn't uh, need to be to be translated. You could leave it. Um, in- yeah, exactly. So, so there's things like that, and, and it's not, you know, and, and um, it's not things that are done deliberately or you know or, or viciously or whatever. But it, it, but it's um, that that can be kind of hard to get around sometimes when someone has done something that that doesn't really know kind of the world that we inhabit. And it would be exactly the same, I think, that if we were suddenly to get a job. Uh, translating something about kabuki theater or no or something we don't really have the, i mean we could look at the text and we could translate it i'm sure but we wouldn't know the nuances or the backgrounds for, for certain concepts within kabuki or or anything really like that that's that's what that's what can be difficult yeah one thing i mean that that's you know ultimately the job of the of the editor to sort of sort that out right and um, but uh, one thing that uh, well, it doesn't irk me, but it's it's a it's an easy trap to fall into. There's two things actually, and um, I'm only uh, bringing this up because it's something that you know. After translation is something that uh, some people are naturally good at it, um, but there's not many people. It's something that you 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 develop your skill over many years and over many projects and you start seeing, seeing uh, the various pitfalls and the traps that you fall into. Uh, and then you start reading other people's translations and you can see why they've translated that way because you would have done that the same way once, but now you know a little bit more because you've done more translations. So it becomes more refined and more polished and it becomes more compact as well. Um, so my one of my important rules is to try and avoid repetition as much as possible uh, and also to cut back on, on words, even if it's written in Japanese in a certain way. Make sure to be sure that you strike man with a very big movement, whatever, okay? Let's just say strike man big. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, obviously, that brings me on to my next point, okay, is uh, I think you'll find yourself doing this too, Michael. Um, I do it all the time. When I translate from Japanese into English or I translate from English into Japanese, I have to be quite careful. So, And the reason I have to be careful is because I, I 
have to get my mind synced with the language that I'm going to be translating into. And so if I'm translating from Japanese into English, I will usually spend about 30 minutes reading a book in English or vice versa when I'm starting to translate. If, you know, if it's a significant body of work that I'm, that I'm doing, I'll, get, I'll do my uh, warm-up in my brain, okay? My linguistic warm-up. Because if I don't do that, I've discovered after living in Japan for 30 years that my thought process is really a jumbled mix of English and Japanese grammar and word order. And I'll find when I put something down on paper and I read it later, it's like, oh my God, this English is written exactly how I would be speaking Japanese with the verb and the, you know, the, the subject and object and so on. Yeah. And vice versa. When I write Japanese, it'll be, it'll, I'll write Japanese exactly how I would be speaking in English in a way. And it becomes very gruff and very straight and uh, possibly a little bit rude. So I have to get my, my brain into the right sort of, uh, linguistic context, if you like, before I start. And I see that a lot when I read other people's translations. Clearly, um, that person has done an accurate job, but their, their word order, their, their, the way they express various terms and stuff is clearly a, a very jumbled mix of both languages, and it's not very clear. So anybody who's not or fay with the subject or, or the languages will find it quite confusing to read. Whereas if we read it, or I read it, it makes perfect sense because that's how my brain is operating in the first place. I think that was one of the things that you, you after I'd done the first several pages or, or chapters of uh, Hirakawa Sensei's book, I sent it to you and and uh, you, you, you did some checking on it with uh, the edit function on, on Microsoft Word and it came back and it was just so dramatically short on many of the sentences. And I was, I was just after that, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't need to use that many words, and that was a that was a really big learning experience because you, you you're inhabiting this world of this book for such a long time. You think, oh, it's a big responsibility. I've got to get this sensei's thoughts over to to people that can't read it in Japanese, and then I want to make sure that I'm getting everything that he's saying uh, on the page in English. But then there's no need for, for, for a lot of it to be, you know, as you said, a choppy apple direct translation. Just a lot of, lot of superfluous stuff, right? Yeah. There's a bit of like, there, there's a bit of tension right between, I think getting the correct meaning across, which often just needs to be a very short sentence versus getting all of the potential nuance in there. But a lot of times maybe some of that potential nuance isn't really important. Yeah, I like the fact that they're using some flowery elocution to uh, elocution to uh, to express the idea. But then you have the opposite problem as well, which I find not. I have I have this sometimes crop up with my uh, translation work, but also my interpreting, particularly with my interpreting. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I've, I've uh, seen it, I've seen it happen. <laughs> yeah, so a simple example is like yes, in the. Uh, the Edo period, uh, the Onoha Itoryu was one of the main uh, styles of swordsmanship that was uh, patronized by the shoguns. Okay. That would be the direct translation from Japanese to English. But if I'm talking to a whole lot of people who 
coming to Japan for the first time. In the Edo period, which was from 1603 through to 1868, a time of uh, peace uh, following the Warring States period where samurai culture developed immensely, there was a style of classical swordsmanship called the Onoha Ittoryu, which was uh, highly popular among the high-ranking uh, uh, levels of, of samurai, including the shogun, who was essentially the top of the government. Okay, so I've just turned a 10-second sentence into a one-minute diatribe. But without that extra information, depending on who the audience is, nobody will understand what the hell the Edo period is, onohaitoryu is, and what the shoguns are. So you sort of have to read the situation or the audience and uh, kind of embellish certain areas to make sure that the message gets across. So sometimes this is a balancing act. Sometimes you have to embellish and sometimes you have to read between the lines and sometimes you just have to cut out all the shit. So well, I know there's people who give me very suspicious looks uh, at some of these uh, interpreting right there where, where your answer is either much longer or much shorter than uh, what the person was. That's, that's uh, actually something that I was just dealing with a couple of days ago for a, for a client. Um, last, oh, Can you look at the, was it the second or third to last paragraph? Uh, the English looks a lot longer than the Japanese and a lot of more information in it. But yeah. what it was is that in the original Japanese spoke about um, and, and it would be very simple in Japanese, so that the, the suffix jutsu was changed to do. So kenjutsu became ah, kendo. So yeah. obviously you would write that in English, but then obviously someone that's just coming to kendo or budo for the first time, or, or even if it's uh, intended for someone that doesn't do martial arts, they will have no idea really what, what does this jutsu and do thing mean. So we had to put in a slight explanation afterwards and that's why the paragraph was longer i had to had to explain to the client that oh well this is why because they're unlikely to um some uh, someone that has not much experience in martial arts would would probably not understand what this move from jutsu kenjutsu to kendo is so that's why we needed to put in a little explanation and then also the, the word uh, michi or do in Japanese has so many great connotations and such a lot in, embedded in just that one character that just also to write that in English as way, uh, again, that, that, that doesn't really do it justice. So you would need, we needed to explain that. Um, I think it was also emphasizes the, the, um, the spiritual educational aspects of the art. Yeah. Which is what made that paragraph much longer than the than the original Japanese, but for the sake of clarity. You just reminded me of a of a, <laughs> a bit of a complicated issue that I've, I've sort of had. I've been working on um, myself for the last few months. I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm in the process of translating this book for the Nippon Budokan. It's a big bugger. So, so that Here book title is is it's a karate book. It's a karate book, it's 550 pages. Um, it's a history of karate, basically. And interestingly, uh, karate history in Japan, it's not that old, um, and that it only came to Japan in the 1920s from Okinawa. But the history or the understanding of history, even among Japanese practitioners, is, is quite sort of <laughs> not, not really 
in line with each other because you have various different view how different schools and they have different ways of thinking and this was written by three prominent teachers from three different Yuha, and they joined forces and they they uh, they came together and wrote a kind of definitive schools of yeah, different schools it's so a def definitive history of of karate and one of the big and michael's been helping me uh with some of this but one of the really interesting issues um see if i can dig it out okay I don't know if you can see this, but uh, the chapter heading, can you see that? Yeah, the fourth chapter. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how to translate it, though. Yeah, yeah right. well, this, this, this actually, tode, uh, tode, or todi. Yeah, it's like. Karate. Okay, literally means Chinese hand. And okay, so I was wondering how to translate, because it's, it's the character for the Tang Dynasty, but yes. also for some other other terms. Well, th this is what karate used to be called in Okinawa, tori. and But it uses the, the, the kanji, which can actually be read as karate as huh. well, karate. Um, so do you translate that as tori or karate? Because that was the way that it was said. But also... Or do you translate whole, Chinese fist or... Yeah. There's, there's a very interesting story behind how actually the kanji was changed from Chinese fist into empty hand. And I won't go into the de details here because uh, it's very long uh, and, and quite involved. But the, my, my point is, it's like there is a time where even this kanji uh, started to be called not todi, but karate. Okay, so when you write it in English or in Romaji, Roman characters, it's still karate, whether it's this kanji or another kanji. But when it's in Japanese, like this, the, the, the connotations are actually quite different. And also the era is different. So this uh, todi, the way that, of reading the, the kanji like this was popular until round about 1903-1904 apparently and that's when karate became kind of mainstream in the media as in the way that it was uh, it was um, uh, pronounced or, or said and so you're looking at okay so when do I start calling it karate when do I start calling it toden and you'll find in a in, a, in one chapter it'll, it'll be jumping between periods and we have different kanji here and there for the same thing. And it's like, holy crap, do I just keep calling it karate? Chinese hand, karate, empty hand. <laughs> <laughs> Which becomes a real pain in the butt, not only for the translator, but also for, uh, for, the, um, for the reader, right? And so you have to sort of uh, reconcile these, these right. if you're, if you're problems. And I even asked the author about the authors about this. We had a meeting at the the Budokan recently, and they're going, "Shit, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we better work on that one." And then Corona happened, <laughs> and that very problem is still in suspended animation. So there's little things like that which um, can really just a simple thing, right? But that really throws a spanner in the works. Because you, you can overthink it as well, but this is this is well, it's a, a history book. distinction used in a lot of different places, and it is, it's a distinction with a definite meaning. Yeah, a strong exactly. meaning to it. I mean, it's it's a completely different word in in many ways. Even That's right. 
pronounced. And it's also it's also very loaded with um, kind of uh, you know political sort of nuances as well, and uh, cultural nuances, of course. Um, so it's it's kind of important in a way. But even the importance of this, if you're looking at it from the perspective of a historian, which is what I am uh, trained as, these things are actually very important. But the authors themselves, they're karate masters who have never really given it that much thought before. It's just, it's read karate. It's like, what the hell? It's the same sort of thing, but it's actually not. So as a translator, it's like, well, how do I sort of, you know, um, uh, reconcile this this what I would consider to be quite an important sort of differentiation because it is about the history of karate after all, right? Yeah. Well, so uh, that, that, that's the other thing is sometimes you find yourself as a translator ending up uh, trying to do a, you've got to be careful of this too, trying to do a much better job than the original authorship. <laughs> not, that, not that that's the case with this, but, you know, with various little articles and stuff that I've translated before. I think you're probably the same too, right, Michael? You, translated stuff is like oh, holy crap this is just so bad but um, um, you know. no comment no comment <laughs> we are we are i think close to an hour or more into this which which I, i'm supposed to cut us off after about 40 minutes or so so i, I thought uh, kid was supposed to be 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh let's let's end here for for now but uh i feel like there's there's obviously still a lot more we could dive into in the topic of, of translation we haven't touched really much on interpreting either um, so let's, uh, let's, let's save it for, for another time. So thank you guys, uh, again for, uh, for recording this. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And, Thanks, uh, buy, buy some of these books. You, these guys uh, have put so much, so unbelievably yep. large amount of effort into, uh, into these books. And you guys may not have seen it, but, uh, they're holding up books and Alex is just gesticulating wildly at his background. <laughs> Apparently you have to talk so the camera can see you. So yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Please, blah, please blah. buy this. Please <laughs> buy this. It's very, very good. And I worked very hard on it. And it will help you, Kendo. Guys out there listening to, to better understand the, the sheer amount of effort uh, it takes to, 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 to do a good translation, do justice uh, in, in translation. Yeah, and also I will add, uh, you've got to have a lot of really good friends in Japan as well who read your shit translation and fix it for you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. <laughs> a collaborative effort. <laughs> it is really seriously. All right, mate. Thanks very much. Okay.